I heard a very interesting story this week. It's kind of a humorous story. It's a story about a five-year-old girl. She was brushing her dog's teeth in the backyard when her father got up to go into the kitchen to get a cup of coffee. And you know, men, as we fathers are, he just raised up the window and looked out back as she was doing that. And he said to her, honey, what is it that you are doing? The young girl responded to the father by saying, Daddy, I am brushing my dog's teeth, but don't worry, I will return your toothbrush like I always have. (laughs) I don't know about you, but parenting can be very challenging, can it not? I've often told people, It would be a whole lot easier if we just got one of those one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ever how many step manuals that go along with them to know exactly what we needed to give each one of our children. But we really don't get that, do we? Not a step-by-step manual. Surely we got the greatest manual of all in raising our children, the Word of God. But at the end of the day, we don't really have a step-by-step manual. But I want to encourage you fathers this morning, no matter where you are in relationship to your journey and their journey, wherever they are at in their journey in life, I want to just encourage you, don't give up, don't lay down, don't quit. Continue to fight the good fight. And men, if nothing else, you remember this this morning. The most important investment you will ever make in the life of your child is a spiritual investment. It's a spiritual investment. You can send them to the greatest schools in the world. You can give them all of the things that our society has to offer. And if at the end of the day, you refuse or you fail, not refuse, but fail to make a spiritual investment in your life's child, I will tell you, eventually it will be reaped in the life of that child. So I encourage you, whatever you do as parents, whether husband, mother, father, whoever, whatever role you find yourself in, make the greatest investment of all. Make a spiritual investment in the life of your child and it will reap rewards down the road. I encourage you to do that. I challenge you this morning as your pastor to make that decision. Well, this morning, I'm not necessarily going to talk about uh, fathers in general. Really, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to all men that are gathered here in this building. I will tell you, men, I almost, said, I almost decided that I was just going to dismiss all of the ladies. But then, after I thought about it for a moment, I was thinking, you know, if I dismiss all of the ladies to go to lunch, who is going to take notes and remind the men of what they should be doing <laughs> if the women are not here? And so I said, well, I better not do that. I better let the ladies stay on here so that they can take notes and remind their men of what they should do or shouldn't do. But I would say to you this morning, no matter where you find yourself in your journey of life, if you're here this morning and you are of the male persuasion, I want you to know that this sermon is applicable to your life. This morning, I want to talk to you about a subject that I believe is of great, of grave importance in the world that we live in. 
I want to speak to you about manhood. Not how the world defines manhood, but how God's Word defines manhood. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes how the world defines something is the polar opposite of how God's Word defines something? Have you ever noticed that? For instance, God's Word clearly teaches us the greatest in the kingdom of God is not the one who is served, but the one who serves. Do you see what I'm saying? The world says the greatest in the world is the number of people who serve you. Jesus said you're great in his kingdom, not by the number of people who serve you, but by the number of people you serve. I would say the same is true in biblical manhood. The world defines manhood in one way. And God defines manhood in something that is totally the opposite. The world puts all emphasis on the externals, men. The kind of vehicle you drive, the title you hold, the amount of money you have in the bank, even to the woman you carry on your arm. God never, ever defines manhood by externals. God's Word always uh, defines manhood by internals. It's a big, big difference. This morning, I want you to listen to one verse of Scripture. It's a verse of Scripture that is found in Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter, the 30th verse. It is a pivotal time in the nation of Israel. God has selected the prophet Ezekiel to deliver a very important message to his people. It is a message of judgment. God is going to judge the nation of Israel for their idolatry and their disobedience. It is in that context that God speaks these words to Ezekiel. I want you to listen to what he says in verse 30. This is by far one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. It is literally heartbreaking. I want you to listen to what God says to Ezekiel. And I sought for a man among them, that is the nation of Israel, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land. The land refers to the nation of Israel. That I should not destroy it, don't miss the last part, but there were none to be found. God says to Ezekiel, I have looked among the nation of Israel for one single man 
who is willing to stand between me and my people. And I have not found any. Nowhere. Now, when God makes that statement, it's not meaning that there was a lack of maleness in the nation of Israel. There were many males in the nation of Israel. But when God started searching for a man that fit his biblical definition of manhood, of what it was to be a godly man, God said, there is none to be found anywhere. When I read that verse, it is devastating to me. Men, can I tell you this morning, God is still searching for godly men who will stand in the gap between Him and the society that they live in. Men who will stand in the gap and represent their families to God. Men who will stand in the gap and be the men of God that He has called them to be. That is what God is saying. It has not changed. God is still searching for godly men who will be the kind of man that He defines in His Word. That is what he is looking for today. So this morning, I want to share with you just a couple of characteristics about godly manhood as how God defines godly man in his word. Now, before we do that, I just want to give you a couple of statements before we begin there. First, I want to make sure that we understand in order to be a godly man, you must first have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot strive to be something if you don't know what God's plan is for your life. And God's plan for every single person, whether they are male or female, is that they would know Him in a personal way. That is the starting point. Now, some of us may assume that that is true when I made that statement, but I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. I want it to be very, very clear today that you must know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior in order to be a godly man. That is the starting point. If you are here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope today will be the day that you will come into a relationship with Him and you can fulfill His desires for your life because God's desire for every male is that He would be a godly man. Can we agree upon that today? Amen? I hope we can agree upon that. Number two, the key to being a godly man is a surrendered life unto the Lord. I think sometimes men hear godly man and the first thing they think in their mind is, well, I have to be perfect. But I would say that is not true. 
There is no man that is perfect. The Bible is full of example after example of godly men, and I would tell you outside of one, none of them were perfect. Think about it for a moment. Abraham was a friend of God, and yet he failed to trust God on at least two occasions. He lied about Sarah being his wife out of fear. Think about David. David is represented in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And yet he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he's still considered to be a godly man. I think about men in the New Testament. Do we really need to go any further than the 12 apostles? I mean, think about those guys. Excluding Judas... They were by far from perfect, weren't they? But when we read their story in the Bible, what do we see? They are considered to be godly men. So I want you to hear me say something this morning, men. You don't have to be perfect to be a godly man, but you do have to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ to be a godly man. Now, this is the good news. The good news is we don't have to do it in our own strength and power. Isn't that good news? Jesus said, when I'm gone, there's going to be one that will come after me. He is the paraclete. He will come alongside you to encourage you, to walk with you, to help you in your time of need. But I, will on, I, can, I can say this with every ounce of honesty I have in my body. You will never, ever be a godly man until you surrender everything to God. That is the truth of the matter. All of your past, whatever's gone on there, you will have to surrender it to the Lord. All of your present, you'll have to surrender it to the Lord. All of your future, you'll have to surrender it to the Lord. You'll have to surrender your wife if you're married to the Lord. You'll have to surrender your family if you have a family to the Lord. Every single thing in your life will have to be surrendered with the Lord, starting with your heart. That's the truth of the matter. If you truly desire to be a godly man. This morning, I want to offer you two characteristics. Two characteristics of what it means to be a godly man. We're going to work through these really quick this morning. The first one is this, a godly man rejects passivity and chooses to lead courageously. The Bible is full of examples of godly men who refuse to sit by idly. Instead, they chose to lead in their society and in their families courageously. When we look at a biblical definition of what it means to be a godly man, it always starts with the understanding that godly men are men who have rejected passivity and they have chosen to lead courageously. I want you to think about it for a moment. There are two different kinds of men that are presented to us in the Word of God. The first man is what? His name is Adam. He is our forefather. Forefather. Now think about him. He is the first created man. He has the best of all worlds, doesn't he? He lives in a perfect home, the Garden of Eden. Everything he needs in life is right there. He's given the perfect woman for him, Eve, his wife. If that is not enough because his relationship with his wife was perfect, 
His relationship with God is perfect. It even says that God communed with Adam and Eve on a daily basis in the Garden of Eden. Adam was a man who had it all, but I would tell you in a blink of the eye, everything has changed. Now, if you know anything about the story of Adam, it would be easy to point to Eve and say that it was Eve who was the problem. That Adam would not be in the situation that he was in if it hadn't been for that woman that had been given to him by God. Isn't that true? As a matter of fact, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree that God commanded them not to, God comes to the garden. Do you hear who he calls for? He calls not for Eve. He calls for Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? Well, God, we recognize that we were without clothing, so we've clothed ourselves. Well, who told you that? Adam, what have you done? Adam, being a responsible young man, turns and says, well, it's that woman that you gave me. She's the problem, God. If you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't be where I am today. God, really, it's your fault and it's her fault. He refused to set responsibility for his actions. Do you see that in this story? But I would tell you, there is a much greater problem in this story than when Eve eats the apple or eats the fruit of the tree. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask that you just quickly turn them to Genesis, the third chapter. I want you to listen here to this story. Many of you are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. We know in the very beginning, in the first chapter, we have a recording of God creating the earth. In chapter 2, after all of the animals are named, there's the recognition that there is no suitable helper for Adam. So what God does is cause Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes one of his ribs, and from that he creates woman. Now I want you to listen to what it says here in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. If you notice, the enemy, Satan, loves to twist the Word of God. Do you see that there? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate it. Now don't miss what it says next because this is the truth. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. When I read this story, the first question that comes to my mind is what in the world is Adam thinking? 
when I read this story, Adam never once raises a question to his wife. He never once says, Oh, Eve, don't forget about the command that God has given us. Do you remember, Eve, what it was that God told us that when we eat of that tree, we will surely die? Don't do it. But what we see in this story is Adam is idly sitting by. He is passive. He is happy to just sit by and let the world pass him by. And I would tell you something, men. Apart from Jesus Christ, Every single one of us are just like Adam. It is part of the curse. We are more than willing to passively sit by and do nothing. We are willing to do that. We are willing to be idle and fail to accept our role of leadership especially when it comes to spiritual things. But I would tell you, take the example of Adam, and I want you to contrast it with a second Adam in the Bible. The second Adam is Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus Christ's example, Jesus Christ rejected passivity and he chooses to lead courageously. Jesus Christ refused to sit by and do nothing about the condition of mankind. He willingly sacrificed his life for the church and he finished his work at the cross. There was nothing that was passive about Jesus Christ. In the midst of great circumstances and odds, Jesus Christ chooses to lead courageously. Do you see that in Scripture? Man, it is a biblical example for us to follow. Adam reduces mankind through his passivity, and Jesus redeems mankind through his courageous leadership. Do you see the opposite? Man, I would tell you this morning the first characteristic of being a godly man is to reject passivity and lead courageously. Number two. Now this one doesn't apply to everyone sitting here, but if you're not married, maybe it will apply to you one day, so I want you to just listen to it. The second characteristic is this. Godly men love their wives passionately just like Christ loved the church. Have you ever noticed the terminology that Jesus Christ uses to describe his relationship with the church? He refers to the church as his bride and his body. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, Paul holds up Jesus Christ's love for the church as an example of how all men should love their wives. If you have your Bibles, quickly turn them over to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes about this relationship of Jesus Christ's love for the church and how that is an example of how we should love our wives. 
Now, men, you're going to want to take notes here because I know that you have a great desire to want to love your wife passionately no matter where you are in that journey with her. And God gives us some great instruction here to help us. And he uses Jesus Christ as the example for us to follow. Listen to what he says here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is Jesus Christ's relationship to his church. Now listen to what he says here. These are the very next words out of the Apostle Paul's mouth or out of his pen as he's writing. In the same way, husbands, you should love their wives. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh." Oh my goodness, Paul just heaps one word upon another to help us men understand our responsibility in loving our wife as Christ loves the church. The first thing that Paul encourages us to do, men, is this. We are to love our wives with a, uh, with a sacrificing love. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, hey men, this is what you should do. You should love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. All right i got a little quiz for you, all right? This is a biblical quiz, all right? Now, don't raise your hand. Just answer to yourself. Are we ever commanded to do anything in the Word of God that is impossible for us to do? No. And God's Word just challenged us as men to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You say, well, Brother Jeff, how did Christ love the church? By willingly sacrificing his life for his followers. Men, loving your wife is not a feeling. It is a choice that every one of us must make. Biblical love focuses on the needs of the per person being loved, not necessarily the emotions or the want of the person who is doing the loving. Think about it. Isn't that what Jesus Christ showed us a picture of? If Jesus Christ made his decision to show his love for us based on wants and emotions, I doubt if he would have ever gone to the cross and hung there and died. He made a deliberate choice to follow the will of the Father and sacrifice himself on us, giving us a biblical picture of what it truly means to love. And the challenge for you and us, or men, are this. We are to love our wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. That means we are to pursue the well-being of my wife even when it comes at a personal cost to me. That's what it means. I pursue the well-being of my wife, men, even when it costs me. Think about it. Isn't that a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross? 
Now, men, let me say something here. I know what some of you may be thinking. I don't know. I, I don't presume to ever know everything that ever, as some people are thinking. But some of you may be thinking, well, you just don't know my wife, preacher. She's unlovable. Can I just say to you, it never speaks about your wife in this passage of Scripture. It speaks to you and to me. It makes no reference to our wives loving us. The reference is made to us men. Do you see that? Go back in time. God, it's that woman you gave me. Do you see that? I can't love her. She's not lovable. God, it's your fault you gave me this woman. But scripturally speaking, that is not true. We are called to love our wives sacrificially. Let me ask you a question this morning, men. How are you doing? Number two, we should love our wives with a caring love. Did you hear the words that Paul used to describe the meaning of caring love? He uses the word nourish and the word cherish. The word nourish means to feed yourself. Some of us men are really good at that, aren't we? I've never met many men that didn't like to eat. I love to eat. The word means to feed yourself. The second word that he uses is the word cherish. Cherish. It carries the ideal of warmth. To nourish and cherish is the opposite of self-centered indifference. Now listen to me carefully, men. If you get nothing else out of this message this morning, I want you to hear what it is that I'm about to say because this is of grave importance in your relationship with your wife. In a very practical sense, this is what it means to us men. Ladies, you're welcome not to listen to me at this moment. Just as we take action to nourish and cherish our bodies, we should take action to nourish and cherish our wives. We do this in three ways. By providing for them physically through adequate material possessions. Now listen to what I said. We seek to meet their needs, not their wants. Many men have blurred that line. Second, we provide for them emotionally through being sensitive to her feelings. I hope if you're a married man or if you're getting ready to get married that you will quickly realize that that being on the other side over here that you're getting ready to make a commitment to is very different than you emotionally. I can promise, if you've not discovered that yet, just hang on. You're going to have an eye-opening uh, experience when you get married. I, I did. Amen? Did I get an amen? Yeah. I heard something there. Yeah. Very different, men. And that's okay. And let me tell you something. We shouldn't relate to our wives like we do the ball team or the hunting club or anywhere else. She's God's gift to us. We should treat her as such. And number three, we should provide for her do not miss it spiritually. Let me ask you a question. Does Christ in His love provide for you 
physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Is that true? Yes. That's the responsibility he has given us as men. Oh, my goodness. Now, listen to me, men. Just listen to me carefully. That means first, we must walk in a relationship with Christ. Then we have been given the responsibility to lead our families spiritually. It is not an option according to the Word of God. It is not. I see this as the single greatest deficit in God's church today. Right here. Now let me say something, man. When I talk about leading our family spiritually, I'm not talking about being a theologian. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Let me, let me equate it like this. Leading your family spiritually is this way. Just listen to me real quick. Focus right here, all right? As I walk with Christ, I take my family along with me so they can see and understand what it means to walk with Christ. Do you see that? You know what that is? That's biblical discipleship. As I walk with Christ, I take my wife alongside me. As I walk with Christ, I take my children alongside me. I don't give that responsibility to someone else. I assume, remember, what is a godly man? Godly men reject passivity and lead courageously. Do you see it? That is our role as men. Number three, we should love our wives with a committed love. Verse 31 is a verse that just screams commitment to me. A man should what? Leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Commitment. You become one flesh is what you become. Commitment. Listen, men. In becoming one flesh with your spouse, it means you know it's no longer about what you want to do or don't want to do. Now it's about meeting the needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually of your wife and your family. Commitment. Let me ask you something, men. Are you loving your wife in that way? With a self-sacrificing love. With a caring love. With a committed love. God said, I searched throughout the land for one man. Man, if I could encourage you to do anything today, it would be this. 
be the man that God has called you to be. That is what our society needs, and that is what God's church needs, is godly men.